Let's go zero to 60 this morning. I want to read to you Psalm 133. Don't need to turn there. Just listen, please. This is written by David. It's a short psalm, three verses. And this is what David writes. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew on Mount Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, the blessing which is life forevermore. The picture that David is painting here is the the beauty of unity within the people of God. That it is like oil covering the high priest, Aaron. It is this reality that there's flourishing and life, life forevermore when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. So let's go zero to 60 this morning. Um, I'm not going to use another opening illustration because I want the opening illustration to be your life. and mine, are you at odds with anyone else here at Edgewater Baptist Church? Is there someone that during greeting time you would avoid? Is there someone when you check your social media and you see that sister or brother from the body here posts something, you are reviled. Is there someone here that maybe something has happened, a little friction in your relationship, and you now say in your heart and perhaps even to others, oh, I don't talk to that person anymore. We just kind of live and let live. I'll let that rest for a moment. Think of one another. Maybe the people that come to mind, if anyone comes to mind, they're not actually here this morning, but maybe they're here sometimes and they would identify themselves as a brother or sister in Christ. But you're wondering because of the things that have happened between you whether or not they actually do know Christ. You begin to doubt their eternal salvation. You begin, you begin to doubt whether or not their heart actually is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Brother and sister, let me just tell you, that's a dangerous road to walk down. So 0-60 to 60 this morning, are you, uni- are you unified with the rest of the body this morning? Or are there personal relationships here that are Factious, broken, splintered, rough.
if you fall asleep after the next thing that I say for the rest of the sermon, I won't say that's okay, but I just want you to get this. The purpose, the main idea, the, the thing that Paul wants us to know as through the Holy Spirit he is writing to the church in Philippi is this. Blessed is unity. Be of the same mind. Think the same way. Don't fall asleep. But there you go. Think the same way. Consider one another and how you can be of the same mind with them. Because here's the thing, a lot of times the reason you're not in the same mind with them is because they have other thoughts about certain things or they've said certain things or you have thought or said certain things or posted certain things and all of a sudden there's a rub there that is seemingly not able to be reconciled. Brothers and sisters, if that's true, that's sin. Call it for what it is. It's sin. And it fractures the body of Christ and pollutes our witness. It must not be. And that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. You may um, be aware of the concept of mindfulness. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and try to make this work. Are you just going to flip, flip to it? Mindfulness. Raise your hand if you've heard of mindfulness. All right, see, it's spreading. Okay? Mindfulness is this idea that we can somehow escape from the rat race of society from the stress that life imposes on us, somehow escape from that if we are just a little bit more mindful. Here's Google's definition. The quality or state of being conscious or aware of something, such as their mindfulness of the wider cinematic tradition. But here's what I'm getting at, the second definition. A mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment, living in the present, while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations used as a therapeutic technique. The reason I bring that up is because, as you can see by the raised hands, this is, this is an idea that is infiltrating our culture. We all kind of have this sense of what mindfulness is. And you may even wonder, can you be a mindful Christian? The answer to that would be yes. That's why I call today's sermon, The Mindful Christian. But it's not the way that society or even certain um, meme engines on Facebook would describe true mindful Christianity. So how does this connect with unity? Let me tell you this. Because, brothers and sisters, we can sometimes walk in friction with one another within the church and it stresses us out in the rest of life. And so then we seek to try to figure out, how do I alleviate this stress? How do I get some real rest? And then we go to society and say, I want to be mindful. 
Paul is saying, yes, be mindful, but let me teach you what it means to truly be mindful. See, unity together is truly a battle of the mind. But it's not, as mindfulness would kind of suggest, it's not psyching yourself up just to get along with someone. Just to live and let live, or can't we all just get along? It's so much more than that. It's about gospel-compelled, actionable, and intentional love for each other. Even as Christ has in His actions and in His intentionality loved us. This is true Christian mindfulness. Are you ready to learn with the Philippians this morning? Do we want to have our minds changed? Look with me in the text this morning. We're, we're actually going to back up a little bit into 127. I'm going to read from 127 through 2.4, chapter 2, verse 4. So this is the, the first, end of the first chapter, beginning of the second chapter of Philippians. It's on page 980 in your Bibles. Please pull them out if you can. Um, Because I want you to see something. I hope you, I hope you guys think, know that Bill and I don't just make stuff up. <laughs> All right? We, we seek to have the text analyze us and speak to the church. And so I want you to see that as you read the text here. There's a reason why I would go in this direction of the mindful Christian. It's because Paul is explicitly calling the Philippians to be mindful. Check it out. Look for the word mind. Starting in 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to you to see, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What I want to walk us through this morning, and I'm going to stick pretty closely to my notes because I, I, want, I don't want to take up too much time in actually what I've written down. I want to take more time in the verses that I haven't read yet in a place of worship and adoring Christ to wrap up the sermon. Because if we don't get there, then we won't get where I'm about to take us, if you know what I'm saying. So what I want to do is I want to highlight 
how Paul is encouraging the Christian to be mindful and how this is in opposition or adversarial. It's against how we might typically think. What Are we on yes? Yeah? Kind of, sort of? All right. Here we go. Can you see that? So-so? All right. I apologize for those of you who can't see it. It's going to be up there anyway. Please don't get frustrated or upset. Um, It just is what it is. So, the first, the way that a mindful Christian thinks is on their new identity. This is from 1, 27 through 30. See, our new identity is this. We are citizens of heaven with a radical call, a radical community, and radical responsibility. First of all, the radical call is Paul saying here, he's, <clears throat> he's saying, you must let your life be worthy of the gospel. See, in this he's talking, like I mentioned last week, he's in, talking about citizenship language. That you are now citizens of a new country. Citizens, citizens of a new place. With a new king. New responsibilities. New loyalties. New dedication. See, as I was thinking about this this week, I think sometimes this is lost on us because most of us, most of us were born citizens of the United States. So we take our citizenship for granted. But talk to someone who is a naturalized citizen or someone who is not yet a citizen but is hoping to become a citizen. For them, the idea of citizenship is always contrasted with where they used to be, with who they used to be. And brothers and sisters, some of us have been Christians for so long, we don't remember that we are actually now naturalized citizens. We were not always born in Christ. We were not always finding our identity in Him. We were finding our identity in opposition to him. Citizens of another country, a country that were enemies to God and his gospel. So think of this citizenship not as this is something you're born into, although think of it as something that you can be born again into. Something that is a High contrast, an utter change from who we used to be. This is our radical call to live as people who remember who we were and now live in the reality of who we are in Christ. That's the radical call. How about the radical community? God has placed us into his family. We see that in the global church, the historical church, all those people who have put their trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, believing that He did live, die, and rise again so that we could have our sins forgiven through His atoning sacrifice. That if it wasn't for Him, we would still be stuck in that, stuck in that country, in the city of destruction. We would still be living there if it was not for God's grace shown through Christ that would lead us to himself. So we are now part of a radical community with other people who have seen the same thing happen. Fellow pilgrims on the road. 
So, as we talked about last week in this radical community, we stand firm together for the gospel. We strive together, united for the gospel, and we are not afraid of our opponents. What can man do to us? Could we have our tax-exempt status removed? Yes, we could. Could other things happen to us that would be even violent opposition against us as a local church? Definitely. Does that mean that God's not on His throne still? No way. Part of a radical community, unafraid, standing firm, striving together, who have a a radical responsibility. See, when we're united... Again, we get back to this importance of being united, being in solidarity with one another. It displays two realities, as Paul mentions here in verse 28 of chapter 1. One, that people that see us, they realize there's something that's unifying them in a way that is different from the rest of society. What do they actually believe? Well, if we hold firm to the Gospel, what we actually believe is that those who do not believe the gospel are headed for destruction. So the local church is a display of destruction for those who do not know Christ. Our unity is important because it displays, we're we're like a stumbling block in Christ that others just can't get their minds around. Why would they give up their Sunday mornings? There's an NFL game being played in London right now. We should be home watching that game. Sundays are family days. We, We need to go out and do our own family thing on Sunday mornings. Why would people give up their Sunday mornings to come together and listen to a guy talk at them? See that rub against society? But on the other side, our unity, our solidarity is salvation. It shows salvation of those who have received the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. We believe and we suffer for His sake and for the defense of the good news. So if we're analyzing ourselves, wondering if in any way we are divided or if us individually are contributing to any divisiveness within the church, hear this, a divided church is not only divided in its gospel efforts, it is also divided in its innate gospel witness. Christ died to unify different kinds of people in His own flesh. If we are divided, it's like saying Christ's arm is walking over there like the Adams family. Weird. Different. Unnatural. We have an innate gospel witness in our unity. The world should see a set-apart people that does not flinch at opposition. They should see us as a smoke alarm that is united in mind and only responds when it's supposed to instead of when the battery's just going out. You don't trust that smoke alarm. May the Lord, may the, may the world see the reality of their need to escape destruction and find salvation through the unity of His church. This mindful Christian thinking on their own identity is opposed to the individualistic mind. 
This is the pride of the self-made person. I'm my own man or woman. Lone rangerism. I'm just going to do me. This is prevalent in American and more broadly Western society. See, the thing is, we have to admit that whether we know Christ or not, anything that we are is all of grace. We debate the reality of privilege. Listen, we live in America all of us are privileged to one degree or another because we're not living somewhere else where opportunities are not as real. The self-made man is a myth. We all stand on the shoulders of others and more importantly, in the providence of God. But even more so, if you do know Christ. Remember that on your own, you used to be a sin-soaked mess destined for destruction. But by God's grace, you were saved through Christ's death, made to live a resurrected life in Him, even as He was resurrected, to walk in newness of life. See, you and I are not called to live our best life now. We are called to live in the family of faith for the glory of God. That is the radical call on us, not radical individualism that our culture preaches and preaches and preaches. Christ, who has given us His body at the cross, has no less given us His body, the church, to remind us of our identities in Him. To rub against the individualism that our society preaches and preaches and preaches. So thinking on our own identity versus the individualistic mind. The next one, Look at 2.1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, dot, dot, dot. The mindful Christian thinks on what you and I, on what we've already experienced in Christ. You may have heard Paul say four ifs right in a row. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort in love, if there's any participation or fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, compassion, or pity. What Paul is doing here, listen to this, Paul isn't saying, oh, so have you experienced these things? No, Paul is asking rhetorical questions that are expecting a yes answer. Of course we have experienced encouragement in Christ. Of course we've experienced comfort and love. Of course there's been participation in the Spirit. Of course there's been affection and sympathy. We've known that in the church. Haven't you? Would you please consider your place in this people here at Edgewater Baptist Church? Can you answer these questions in the affirmative too? Have you experienced these things in any measure? I'm not asking you to measure your experience of these things versus someone else. But have you experienced these things? Encouragement, comfort, participation, affection to a certain degree within this body? The answer to that is, of course you have. Of course you have. And more so, you've experienced all of these things in Jesus himself. And Paul was helping the Philippians who were a 
divided church. There was some church disunity excuse me, going on there. He's saying, before I keep going, take stock of what you've already experienced. Realize people really do love you. People really have sacrificed for you. People really have had compassion and kindness towards you. And those people have done that because Christ is in them. And this church is a Christ church. What this bucks against is the pessimistic mind. Pessimistic that this is going to go up on the screen. There we go. The pessimistic mind. The pessimistic mind says this, others don't love me, others don't serve me, others don't really know me. I don't know who I am in this church anymore. Maybe I should find another. There's a tendency to blame others when we aren't actually resting in the experienced grace of God ourselves. We forget. Listen, no church is perfect, not even ours. But if we're honest, we've known encouragement, comfort, love, fellowship, affection, and compassion here in some way. So even if you feel like we are lacking as a body, remember that you've experienced the fullness of those things in Christ. So trust that he has you here. If Christ has shown you all of those things, then trust that he has you here. Listen to this. Not only to experience more of it, but to help others experience it. It's not all about you or me. And that's where Paul is going to take us here. This pessimistic mindset sometimes turns into a victim mindset. The victim is often just a disguised pessimist. Brothers and sisters, in Christ, we have no ultimate reason for pessimism. Well, that's just my natural personality. I'm a, I'm a glass half empty person. That might be your natural personality, but don't let that be your supernatural in Christ personality. Would you be willing to let the Lord change how you view the world? Change how you view the church? Change how you view the future? Because you say, listen, I'm ultimately winning in Christ. He has the victory. So what am I pessimistic about? Today might be a rough day, but it was the Lord's day. I might have had a bad night of sleep last night, but the Lord was with me. My kids might be acting whack right now, or my teacher is just on me. I might not have friends. I might not be able to pay the bills. I might not know what I'm doing for my internship next semester. Fill in the blanks. I don't know what retirement's going to look like for me. Why are we pessimistic? Pray. Trust God. Christ has the victory. And we're in Him. We have hope. So verse 1 is conditional. You and I have to think about this because if you don't actually acknowledge the fact that you have experienced love within the body of Christ, Christ using other people to love you, then you're going you're gonna to really, really buck against what's coming up next. So even now, think, Lord, forgive me of my pessimism. 
Paul also wants to do this. The mindful Christian thinks on making progress and having greater joy in the faith. Look at verse two, two or chapter two, verse two. He figures he he follows this list of four conditions. The if 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 he says if these are true, which yes they are, Paul is saying, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, which is another word for unity, being in full accord and of one mind. The first imperative or the the first must, you know, Paul is a pastor saying, listen, people, I got to tell you some things because I love you. The first one was in 127 where he said, let your manner of life be like citizens of the gospel. Live like you actually believe it. And now here's the second one. He says this, complete my joy. Complete my joy. All right, little pop quiz time. We don't usually do this in the service, but I'm going to put anybody who would want to um, give him an, op- an opportunity to remember Bill's definition of joy. And not just remember it in your mind. All right, Mark, you want to stand up? Try it. <laughs> Alan, want to go for it? Okay. So this unwavering and sure confidence that a very good God is always in control. Did I get it almost right? Almost. almost. You, do you want to say it? Settled. Settled. Okay. Okay. That's the working definition of joy that we've been walking through. And we've talked a lot about that being an unconditional thing. Not conditional like happiness, but a a settled conviction, a a rock-solid belief and understanding. Which makes this interesting because Paul seems to make it conditional. He says, if these things are true, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Paul's saying, I want you to complete my joy by being unified. Is Paul making this conditional? I think the answer is yes and no. First of all, he's confident that God is going to finish the work that he has begun in the Philippians. That's an unconditional joy. So he is rock solid settled in that reality that God has saved this people and he's going to continue to work in them. So that's an unconditional joy in God and His sure work in the Philippians. However, there is a conditional reality here too. Uh, Well, I want you to do this so that my joy can be completed. This conditional joy that would increase in seeing their progress, as He said in 125, and their obedience to His instructions. So my joy is settled, Philippians. I know what God has done in you, and I'm confident He'll continue it. My joy is unwavering. However, my joy can increase and even be completed by seeing God's work in you. 
So what are his instructions for this progressing in joy? He says, be of the same mind. Think in the same way. That's a radical thing for a body of people, a group of people to think about. To think in the same way. Have the same love. Full unity. Think the same thoughts. See, what he's saying here is there's a promise that we, you and I, can increase in our joy. He's hoping to. And he's hoping that the Philippians will too. In 125, he says this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Have you plateaued in your joy? Has living in and growing in and hearing the preaching in a church that exalts Jesus and the sovereignty of God above all things, has that plateaued your joy? Sure, I have this settled conviction that God is always in control. My confidence is in eternity. I know He's with me. And that's where I've been for a long time. Have you plateaued? Have I plateaued? Or is there an expectation that God would increase and even complete our joy? Yes. For your progress and joy in the faith. There is an increasing element here that we have to consider because, brothers and sisters, he gives instruction for how to progress in joy. Because progressing in joy, growing in joy, anticipating more joy is dependent on a mind that has love for your local brothers and sisters. It agrees with your local brothers and sisters. And it thinks about the gospel with your local brothers and sisters. There's a unity of mind here that brings great Joy, increasing joy. Do you want it? This is what it fights against. The wise in one's own mind, mind. This person always needs to have an original idea. They're seeking more knowledge, but not more obedience. They're always asking questions but never trusting God's word for answers. Their posture towards brothers and sisters is to refute them or rebut them to find the hole in their belief, even while somehow trying to disguise the hole in their own. This person doesn't rest in gospel unity achieved by Christ, and they don't progress in joy because they are not settled They've got happy feet within the church and they, they just don't know if this is the right place for them or if this is the right people for them or just kind of hold everybody at arm's length even if they're here every Sunday. Because see, I'm wise in my own mind. I got this. I got the gospel figured out. I know my ticket for heaven is stamped. So I'm good. I'm good. I don't need others. Paul is saying the exact opposite. You need, we need each other in a much more radical way than we typically think. So he moves into 2, 3, and 4, saying this. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, 
But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The mindful Christian thinks on others. I've been using this phrase, thinks on. Thinks on. This is, this is a pondering. I was reading Psalm 99, I believe it was, yesterday. And the psalmist uses the word ponder twice in that psalm. I ponder your ways. This is a Christian mindfulness, really. This is a, Lord, I, I take a step back. And Lord, I, I want to know your ways. I want to ponder what it actually means to be a Christian and allow your word to change my incorrect thoughts. I want to truly follow you, to ponder your ways. But then Paul brings it here to think on others, ponder others. This is where things start to get a little bit more active here. See, the mind, in order for it to work, displays its thoughts in action. I want to give you a little... uh, a little personal testimony here that might, you might identify with. There are some days when I get lost in my own mind. And as I've shared with a couple of you in here, when that happens, it's like a dark whirlpool where I'll start to just think about myself And as I think more about myself, I critique myself, condemn myself, which then leads to judging others. Oftentimes leads to silence. It leads to stepping out of family life sometimes. And this whirlpool of my own self-analysis, my own strange mindfulness becomes darker and darker and more self-analytical and condemned. I think Paul understands this. I think Paul understands that this happens sometimes when a church is not, not, not unified. When, when people are competing against each other and all of a sudden they're analyzing their own motives, they're analyzing the supposed motives of somebody else, and it can get this church in this whirlpool of condemnation, goes to a dark place and continues to suck the body down. So what Paul says here is, I want you to think on others. By God's grace, that is always how God rescues me from that whirlpool. He says, think on Christ and think on Christ's people. Ponder him and ponder them. And that brings great freedom. It brings the freedom to be able to serve others as Christ has served me. It frees me from self-analysis that leads nowhere except maybe self-paralysis. And I get a new perspective on God and the gospel and his people by his grace. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. 
what I want you to do is I want you to put what I'm asking you to think about into action. This is how things happen for the unity of the church. And he says, I want you to do it in humble practice. Not humble where you beat yourself down, but humility. I've, I've heard this definition in several places. Tim Keller's one that I've heard say it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not the woe is me syndrome, but it is how can I serve others and love them? Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The Greek, you don't, you don't catch it here in the text, but the Greek says here, it's more forceful. It says, don't you ever think with greedy ambition or conceit. When it comes to serving others, don't you ever allow yourself to think thoughts that would puff you up. These things are only of grace. Don't even think any thoughts motivated by yourself. He's warning those that are factious, that are splintering the church. What are you doing? You're promoting yourself instead of Christ. There's great danger of ministry ambition that brings self-promotion. Listen, I speak from personal experience in this church. Years ago, and I'm not saying that this sort of thing doesn't happen or my, my heart does not get pricked in this way even today or tempted in this way even today, but years ago, there, there was stuff going on here. There was friction. There was hardship. And I only say these things because I will confess I was in the middle of it. I was in the middle of it. Selfish ambition. Defending ministries. Assuming that others didn't really have God's will in mind. That they were not filled with the Spirit. Or, or kingdom-minded. Which, as I mentioned before, leads to that dangerous path of actually doubting whether or not they know Christ. Where I'm considering, are we actually part of the same family? Because right now the friction just seems so intense. Paul's saying, don't even think about exalting yourself in this way. Instead, instead, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What he's saying is, think of others as outstanding, as more outstanding than you. Regard others as surpassing you. Praise God. When, when friction comes, instead of doubting them, instead praise God that He is doing work in them. Praise God for their gifts. Praise God for their successes in ministry. Praise God for their promotion. Praise God for the kids that are born to them. Praise God for their humility and joy in suffering. Praise God, praise God, praise God when we are looking at one another. See others as outstanding in Christ. Keep that right here because the end of the sermon is going to finish with a flourish that connects right with that. Verse 4, 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What he's saying here, the, the Greek word skopeo, this acting intentionally, let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What Paul is trying to communicate here is that this, this Greek word skopeo is such a, such a concern for somebody else that you are continually seeking out more information, not for the sake of gossip, continually seeking out more information about what's going on in their life, truly wanting to get to know someone, truly saying, how can I pray for you? Truly saying, is there a need of yours that I can meet? Truly saying, so you're unemployed? I might have a connection for you. Truly saying, so your loved one is sick and you have these medical decisions to make, or your loved one has died and you don't know what funeral home to pick. Like these sort of specific things in the life of the church where we really get to know people. We really say, so at what stage is your immigration status? Is there any way that I can help? And if there's no practical way that I can help, can I do the most practical thing? and pray that God would show up and work in your situation. Paul is saying, I want us to act intentionally for the interests of others and then learn as we acquire this information about one another's lives, respond appropriately. Let's not leave each other on red, if you know what that means. Let's not just say, I have now understood your life a little bit, Have a good week. See you next Sunday. If the Lord prompts you to respond and put love into action, then as mindful Christians, we thoughtfully put love into action. I want you to notice here that Paul does not minimize the individual, us. What he's doing here is while while he's recognizing our ability in Christ to serve others, and so then he is elevating the others. He's not denigrating us and our interests. He's elevating the interests of others so that we can serve each other. This is exactly what Paul is getting at. Do you want to think of yourself less? Do you want, do you want to get out of that self-analysis analyzing whirlpool, then lift others up, act for their good, look to their interests. This is, in a way, a litmus test. How often do you and I think to serve others at EBC? To initiate for their good, to consider their needs. Are there other people of Edgewater that you pray for during the week and you ask the Lord God, how can I serve them? I have resources. And even if I don't have a whole lot of resources... I do have some that you've given me. How would you have me help them? This is counter to the arguing, divisive, gospel, minimalist mind. Let me explain. We're sinners because we're people. Even as Christians, We still have the flesh. There will be 
disagreements within the church. There will be differing opinions about different issues. We live in a society that's not a Christian society, not this side of heaven. But the person that looks and thinks on and ponders others is counter to the Christian who is always arguing, always trying to split hairs, always trying to promote their own agenda rather than the agenda of the kingdom through the good news of Jesus. Therefore, because they're always arguing in that way, they're divisive. They're, they're splitting up the church into different camps. They're forgetting our gospel identity and our call to radical community. And ultimately, they're a gospel minimalist. They say, I've trusted Christ. I'm going to heaven. Now, Lord, let me just hold on till I get there. Let me not get too involved with these people that you've put me with. Minimalizing the gospel instead of maximizing that radical call to community. So you could, I think, rightly ask this question. How are we then to know how and when to disagree? How does a believer with different opinions, let's pick politics. All right, 2020 is coming up. We'll pick an easy one, right? How, How does a believer understand how to disagree with another believer regarding politics. I would say this. Let our, let our analysis begin with the gospel. To truly set down and say, I am, I am disagreeing with this person in a way that can somehow break fellowship with them the only issues, the only issues that should cause a brother and sister to break from another brother and sister should be gospel issues. These things being the nature of God, the nature of man, the reality of sin, the person of Christ, the availability of salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. And then the last one, the kingdom, that's where things are a little bit more gray. What does it look like to live in the kingdom? Paul would say, I want you to live in the kingdom as unified as possible. This does not neglect the importance of other issues for instance, politics, but it does put them in their correct place and is a warning regarding what it is that our lives proclaim. Hear me on this, please. 2020 is an incredible opportunity for either division or for gospel unity and joy. How will you and I embrace it? As an opportunity to proclaim our differences or an opportunity to say there is a people who are unified in Christ. So I'll say this. 
If you've lost friends because of your political stance, that's a problem. Now, I would also say this. Sometimes you will lose friends because of your gospel stance. Doctrine divides people. But listen, if you're exalting your political stance to such a degree that people have to make the assumption that to become a Christian, they have to vote like you, that's wrong. That's wrong. And may God forgive us for our perhaps well-intentioned but utterly divisive realities. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't talk about these things. In fact, we should talk about them. The gospel life is so much more than minimally just getting along. It's truly serving one another. It's truly listening to one another. It's understanding how we have even come to our political views. According to social identity theory, we all have different social identities that are stacked on top of each other. And those show up in different ways at different times. Okay? Simeon ran a cross-country race on Wednesday at Lane or Thursday at Lane Tech. If I put on my cross-country dad identity this morning as I preach to you, I would only be yelling at you and I could only be talking to Simeon because I was rooting for Simeon. All right? That's a, that's a kind of a silly example, but I want you to see that. We, we have different identities that, that are stacked based on our context. What Paul is trying to get the Philippians to do is say, you need to stack all those, those identities under your gospel identity, under your citizens of heaven identity, and don't let any of those things supersede you as citizens of heaven. So church, would we look at 2020 and all the mess that's up that leads up to that, as opportunities to be a people that says, yeah, we differ politically. And we talk to each other about those things, but we don't blast each other about those things. We try to understand one another, and we try to serve one another. Today's second Sunday, right after church here, invite you to go down. I invite you, I invite us to be intentional. You don't need to talk politics, that's okay. But be intentional in asking one another, what is life really like for you? How can I really pray for you this week? Is there a way that I can serve you this week? But I would also ask you this, try to sit with some people that you don't know so that you don't already know the answers to your own questions. <laughs> Get to know some other brothers and sisters here that look different than you and act different than you and might have different political beliefs than you, get to know one another and love each other intentionally, legitimately. Let's look at the text. And I'm just going to read this final thing because here's the thing. Unless we see ourselves as citizens of heaven and are reminded of the grace of Christ, all of this is burdensome and utterly foolishness. And this is what Paul has in mind too. He, it's interesting here. He um, two one through eleven. Bill's going to speak more on it next week, so that's why I'm leaving a lot of the theology to him because he's going to be able to dive into that a little bit more. But what Paul is doing um, 
in a really worshipful way here. In verses 1 through 4, he's using the language of what is called the homonia. It was a belief in the unity of citizens. Philip II, who I mentioned last week, believed in homonia. He used certain language to unify the Greek city-states. He said, you're all Greeks. Get along. Paul uses that same sort of language in verses 1 through 4. You're all citizens of heaven. Be of the same mind. But then Alexander, Philip II's son, I mentioned him last week too. Alexander took it the next step. Alexander the Great conquered a huge empire and he used the same homonia concept and belief and said, and all of these people from all of these nations can now become Greeks too. And he began to say, let's gather all these people under the incredible reality of the Greek empire, in his words, not in mine. Paul is using that sort of language in one through four. So he's, he's helping these Philippians who knew all about this sort of language to hear in the words that they would understand, this is about being citizens of heaven. Similar to if Paul had written it to us and say, um, and use like um, the first lines of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, we would understand this is calling us to American citizenship. He's saying here, I'm calling you to heavenly citizenship. But then he shifts in verses 5 through 11, because look at verse 5. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves. The third must. Be unified in this. Have this mind among yourselves. Think in the same way. Though you are very diverse, think in the same way. Ultimately. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When he writes this, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he is saying three things at once. He is saying, think on Christ. Remember what he did. Remember who he is. He's also saying, think like Christ as your example of, hum of humble love and actionable self-sacrifice. And then he's saying, think in Christ. As you think on Christ, as you think like Christ, remember, remember that those that you're with are also in Christ too. So Christ is exalted in the life of the local church for the sake of unity even among a diverse people. Again, made one flesh in his own body. So then listen to this because Paul turns from this Greek homonia language into a hymn. This was a hymn that it seems the early church knew even before Paul used it in Philippians. It doesn't look like a hymn in your Bibles, but it was a hymn. He uses doxology or praise to help the people understand this is the high calling of heavenly citizenship. It is, a, it is a singing of the glories of God in Jesus Christ. I'm not going to sing it for you right now, but hear it. Hear it and let's worship Christ as we hear it. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, to think on, to think in, and to think with. Who? 
though he was in the form of God, exalted, right? He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Jesus made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what did that obedience bring? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Pause. All right, I just got to bring back that thing that I brought earlier about putting it over here and bringing it back. When Paul tells them, count others more significant than yourselves, he is using the exact same concept as he's talking about God doing to Jesus here. Hello? God, he's saying here, did not bring himself down to be any less godlike. Instead, he saw the obedience of Jesus to the cross and he exalted him. He exalted him for all people of all times to look upon and say, he is the Savior. He is the only one we can have any hope in. But the condition was that Jesus was exalted out of his humility, out of his self-sacrifice, out of his considering others that needed to be saved. So he lowered himself, did not become un-God, but he lowered himself to be fully God and fully man, serving us to the point of living a perfect life and then dying a death that you and I deserve instead. And out of that humility that is expected of us as we exalt one another, Paul says God will exalt Jesus. He has highly exalted Jesus. So when we serve each other out of humility, we are exalting Jesus too. Because we are his body. Therefore, Paul ends with this flourish. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we would ask you simply and directly this morning that you would unify your church, unify your people. Give us hearts of repentance and apology this morning if we need to, even during Second Sunday, sit down with someone that we have been ignoring or hating. Oh God, that you would give us such a blessed love for each other as your people here that the world would see in us an indissolvable unity in Christ. May we be a people of hope and optimism because we are in you. And Lord, I would pray this. If there's anyone here that is destined for destruction because they do not know you yet, would they even today say, yes, Jesus, I need you. I need your death to be my death instead of my death being my death. I need to be forgiven.
And O Holy Spirit, work and move and save. God, for your glory, we pray this, Jesus. Amen.